Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You've heard us say it before, the 2020 presidential election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic. The entire system of elections in the United States is for the most part set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the hen house. Because if all the foxes are guarding the hen house, then they're not going to let some other fox go grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that in most cases, in most places, works very well because you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. So we're here to ensure the right to vote will be preserved. The podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We'll interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration. From voter registration to ballot casting and counting, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote by mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen, like the future of our country depends on it. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. My name is Royville Brown. It is another Mid-Atlantic. I'm sat in a gloriously, wonderfully spring East Bay over here in California. And uh, today I'm joined by a smorgasbord of legal minds. I have uh, with me Ayanna Butler uh, in in D.C. I have Otis Dixon. Otis, uh, where exactly are you? I'm in Washington, D.C. as well. Uh Ah, part of the D.C. posse. We have Eric Foster, not so much of a legal mind, but a a political wonk uh, par excellence. Eric, where are you based, sir? Eric Foster. Okie dokie. Maybe he's gone to spend a penny. Uh, Actually, I'm in Chicago at Walgreens, but I'm in Michigan. (laughs) 
Thank you, Eric Foster. And uh, bringing up the rear in terms of our legal minds, we have Steve Crone. Uh, Steve Crone, uh, where exactly are you in LA, sir? <laughs> Sherman Oaks. President Joe Biden has nominated Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court, calling her one of the nation's brightest legal minds. Miss Jackson, who's 51, currently serves on the influential U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. She will be the first black woman to serve in the court's 233-year history and only the third African-American, replacing Liberal Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer when he retires at the end of court's term in June. She has two degrees from Harvard and she's been described by Biden as an extraordinary candidate with an independent mind, uncompromising integrity and a strong moral compass. For coming president, Biden first promised to nominate a black woman to the top court some two years ago. For too long, our government, our courts haven't looked like America. President Biden's choice, federal judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, was always considered a frontrunner for the Supreme Court nomination. On Friday, the nation began to learn why. I am standing here today by the grace of God as testament to the love and support that I've received from my family. My parents taught me that unlike the many barriers that they had had to face growing up, if I worked hard and I believed in myself in America, I could do anything or be anything I wanted to be. It was my father who started me on this path. When I was a child, I watched him study, and he became my first professional role model. But if you traced my family back past my grandparents, who were raised in Georgia, by the way, you would find that my ancestors were slaves on both sides. Uh, let's start with you, Mr. Dixon. Uh, Otis, you started working in litigation at the D.C. office for the attorney general, which uh, allowed you to view Judge uh, Brown Jackson, uh, who has spent some eight years on that district court. And, that, and in that time, she penned more than 500 opinions. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about some of her key judgments? And is there a thread to, uh, to her many opinions? And, and if so, what do they tell us about her? Well, I can tell you this. It would, it, it would be very difficult to cover every subject area that she's treated as a judge because, as you just mentioned, she wrote over 500 uh, judicial opinions while she was working uh, as a trial judge on the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. Another reason I can't cover them thoroughly is that when I worked as a trial attorney uh, in the Civil Litigation Division of the Office of the Attorney General for the District of Columbia, I focused on employment discrimination cases, which makes me a specialist, not a generalist. So I'm more familiar with the cases that she wrote that concern employment discrimination. I can tell you that in my review, she strikes me as a judge who's moderate, she isn't firmly conservative. She isn't firmly liberal. When it comes to employment discrimination cases, uh, you will find that she more often than not uh, ruled in favor of the defendant, who in those cases is usually the employer. That's not surprising, though, because uh, the Supreme Court has interpreted employment discrimination laws as requiring plaintiffs 
to bring forward a lot of evidence in order to prove their cases. What that means is that the standard that an employment discrimination plaintiff must meet in order to win at trial is really high. So it's no wonder that when you look at her record, you'll find that she uh, usually sided with defendants. One interesting case, though, is a case called Roth Development versus U.S. Department of Defense. In that case, a corporate defendant challenged a law that gives preferences and government's contracts to socially disadvantaged persons. And according to that law, socially disadvantaged persons include people who are racialized minorities, such as African Americans, Latinos, etc. And in that case, she ruled against the corporate defendant and upheld the law. What that meant was that the government was still allowed after the legal challenge to give preferences to government contracts to social in government contracts to socially disadvantaged individuals and i think that's really important because there's a story floating around uh, that says that um, judge katanji brown jackson is hostile uh, to civil rights plaintiffs but in a case that would have had uh, a severe impact on socially disadvantaged uh, individuals, which co- includes so, um, racialized minorities, she saved uh, the provision in the law that allowed them to continue uh, receiving the preferences and government contracts that they need. And the reason that preference exists is that Congress surveyed the evidence and concluded that racialized minorities have been systematic, um, systemically shut out from the government contracting process. Thank you for that that detail. You said that you saw as a moderate. In terms of the uh, composition of the Supreme Court, um, everybody says that she's a liberal, but you see her as really somebody who in in British parlance would call a crossbencher, somebody who is really in the middle as opposed to, let's say, um, a liberal justice. Well, when I say moderate, I wasn't referring to her political ideology, because I, I don't know it. I can only guess what I think it is. But when I called her a moderate, I was referring to her judicial output, given what's there. And when I look at the employment discrimination cases that I mentioned, I see her applying the law um, firmly, uh, making sure that she doesn't cross the boundaries that are set for her by courts that have more authority than she does. Boundaries that are set for her by Congress and the laws that Congress has passed. And so it would be, um, it would be disingenuous to, disingenuous to call her uh, an activist to judge who does whatever she wants. No, she really follows the law. And that's, and, and that's in keeping with, with moderate behavior as a judge. I will say this one thing. Uh, Her track record, when you look at it in its totality, suggests that she is committed uh, to protecting uh, the civil rights of marginalized groups because when she worked as a vice chair and commissioner on the uh, U.S. Sentencing Commission, she focused on reducing the harsh impact of the federal sentencing guidelines in several contexts. And so I think that shows that she would probably 
lean to the left, even if she remains in the center once she gets on the Supreme Court. Thank you for that, Mr. Dixon. Uh, Steve Crone, I'm going to come to you. The, the Supreme Court plays a key role in American life. It's the final word on disputes between the states and the federal government and highly contentious laws. How is a new Supreme Court justice actually confirmed? Steve, could you take us through that process? Because as I said before we actually hit record here, I think this is um, the utter reason for, for doing Mid-Atlantic, you know, the compare and contrast between the US and the UK, because we have nothing like this in the UK. Judges aren't a political football. Uh, there isn't a big show confirmation process when a new member of the Supreme Court in the UK is confirmed or nominated, whatever the expression is. They're just great people. We don't even know them. So take us through the process, Steve Crone. Well, the formal process begins with the president nominating a candidate. Um, sometimes the president may consult with senators before doing so. Um, the president certainly isn't obligated to do that. Um, once a candidate is nominated, uh, that nomination is sent to the Senate Judiciary Committee. They hold hearings. They usually take a good month to uh, gather information before they have the hearings, records, questionnaires, FBI investigations. Uh, then they have hearings. The senators themselves ask questions. Witnesses appear both in support and in many cases in opposition to the nominee. You know, this is all sort of boring Senate procedural stuff. Then if the committee recommends uh, the nominee, sometimes they don't even report a, a nominee out. It never reaches the floor of the Senate, but assuming it reaches the floor of the Senate, there is a vote on the floor of the Senate after debate. As many people know, uh, that debate in the Senate is um, unlimited and until relatively recently, uh, what's called a cloture vote required two thirds of the senators to end debate on a nomination. Uh, that, that was changed to requiring a mere majority and so now a mere majority of senators can stop debate and make sure that a vote actually occurs. Uh, and then once uh, a vote does occur, it takes uh, just a, a majority of the voters, uh, of a majority of the senators uh, present and voting to confirm a Supreme Court nominee. Uh, if it's a tie, uh, the vice president breaks the tie, as with any other uh, floor vote in the Senate. And that is just the mechanics of the process. She once clerked for Justice Breyer, who she's actually going to be replacing. And that was during uh, the Supreme Court's 1999-2000 uh, term. Uh, Steve, you also clerked at the Supreme Court. What exactly does a clerk do? Can you give us a little bit of an insight? Sure. Uh, it varies a little bit from chambers to chambers, but uh, essentially there are three core duties. The first is to deal with cert petitions, which are, or petitions for certiorari, as they're officially called, which are the papers that are filed for someone to attempt to bring a case before the court. And the law clerks play a very important role in sorting through all those petitions. There are thousands of them. And writing a memo, uh, essentially outlining what the issues are and whether it's the sort of case that the Supreme Court might want to take up. Uh, when I was there, that was done primarily through what they called the cert pool, which meant that one clerk and only one clerk for the, in the entire court would do what I just described. That memo would be circulated to all of the justices participating in the pool. Uh, 
And that's how it was done. Some justices who don't participate in the pool do that process wholly within their chambers. The second thing is uh, preparing uh, a justice or helping prepare a justice to hear cases. That usually involves writing what's called a bench memorandum. And again, this varies wildly from justice to justice. It might be a two or three page memo summarizing the key issues and how um, the case ought to be ought to come out or how it ought to be thought about. Other justices required very comprehensive 40, 50 page memos that went into excruciating detail. Now that of course is based on filings by the parties and others, a so-called amicus briefs by other parties who might be interested in the outcome of a case. And then the third thing of course is the actual drafting of judicial opinions. Again, as with each of the other two phases, different justices approach this differently. Some justices will have uh, one of their clerks compose the first draft of an opinion, and then there's an editing process that goes on. Other justices will draft the first, uh, go at it themselves, and then get the clerk involved. It, it varies from, from justice to justice. So those are the three basic duties, uh, sorting through cert petitions, preparing bench memoranda and otherwise assisting the justice in getting ready to hear a case and then drafting opinions, whether they be majority opinions, concurrences or dissents. Steve, this might sound like a a really naive question, but I'm the Brit here. And as I, I said before, we don't have this process within the UK. Is it likely, does it ever happen uh, that a judge would actually look at the work that a clerk has actually done and actually be, let's say, and have their opinion changed by it. Does a judge truly uh, come to a specific uh, case in front of them, kind of as prejudice-free as they can be, and they've looked at all this research, they've looked at these notes, these you know these 50-page uh, memos of which you've described, read through that and, and possibly have their decision swayed one way or the other? Or is this kind of basically confirmation bias? Um, so I, I, I'm going to ch- challenge the assumption of the question a little. I, 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 the short answer to your question is yes, sometimes the clerks in preparing a bench memoranda a bench memorandum, or even in the drafting of an opinion, will have an influence on the justice's thought process and and the way in which cases are decided. But I wouldn't frame it in terms of changing the justice's mind, because although we all know uh, even a casual court observer will follow a case about, you know, a hot button issue, whatever that might be, a prayer or the right to an abortion or what have you, right? A lot of the cases that come before the court involve statutory interpretation, often uh, highly technical, uh, criminal procedure, uh, antitrust, tax law, right? All sorts of areas where the idea that the justices are coming with some preconceived notion or bias Of course, all people have preconceived notions and biases, but they might be much less evident in many other kinds of cases. And so I would just describe it as an iterative process. I mean, just like uh, any underling working for a decision maker in another kind of an organization could influence the thinking of the person they're working for because they are marshalling information, providing analysis. Yeah, 
I have even seen a few occasions while I was at the court where much more substantively, not just in terms of, you know, assisting the justice in marshalling all of the material, but where the rationale for a case, most often in a concurrence or a dissent, where a justice is essentially free to write whatever they want, uh, where, where a clerk has made a significant impact. And let me clarify that last point. When a justice is writing for the court, the way it works is when the court votes and they in weeks in which they're hearing cases, they meet and vote. And the only people in the room are the justices, clerks, others are not allowed in the room. Uh, the junior justice, the, the one who's been on the court the least time is sort of the note taker. And beginning with the chief justice and then going down in order of seniority in terms of years of service on the court, each justice says what they think. They might speak for 30 seconds. They might speak for two or three minutes, but they essentially say, here's how I would vote in this case. And here's why. Once that process is done, if the chief justice is in the majority, the chief justice is responsible for assigning the justice who will write the opinion of the court. If the chief justice is not in the majority, then the senior most justice who is in the majority assigns the opinion. So if you are a justice who's writing an opinion for the court, you don't just need to write an opinion that you are satisfied with, but you need to circulate it around to all of the other justices in the majority, and they need to continue to agree with your opinion. And so there's a process by which justices write memos that they circulate to the entire conference saying, I've read Justice X's draft of the majority opinion, and I have the following comments. And so majority opinions are always somewhat collaborative among any number of the justices in the majority. Concurrences and dissents, on the other hand, a justice is writing for herself, and she can write whatever she wants. She will then circulate the opinion, and if other justices want to join her concurrence, they're welcome to or her dissent. And if they don't, then she writes just for herself. So the ability to influence uh, is, is greater when it's a concurrence or a dissent. I hope that made sense. Absolutely did, sir. It absolutely did. I understand the importance of zealous advocacy, but it appears that sometimes this zealous advocacy has gone beyond the pale. And in some instances, it appears that your advocacy has bled over into your decision-making process as a judge. Chairman Dick Durbin, along with other Democrats, have defended Judge Jackson as incredibly well-qualified and a known quantity, pointing out that she's already been through the Senate confirmation process successfully three times before. Now we're facing a choice sponsored by the most radical elements of the Democratic Party when it comes to how to be a judge. They have the most radical view of what a judge should do, and you were their choice. Eric, let's come to you with the Senate divided. Please tell us, when did confirmation hearings of Supreme Court justices become so partisan? Because it wasn't always thus, was it? Well, actually, you're right, Royfield. It was not. And Supreme Court confirmation hearings actually did not start until... The, I believe it was the 1916 nomination of Judge Brandywise, who would be the first Jewish American on the Supreme Court. And that was the first time 
that the actual confirmation hearing process was held. Prior to that, it was just submitting the documentation, doing a review, and then you'd have to vote on the nomination. That being said, really, I would say starting with, actually, if you really want to go back, Justice Marshall's confirmation hearing was contentious based on the desire of two of the members of the Senate, and their names are escaping me, but their willingness to play the same sort of Q&A that we saw with Judge Jackson, Brown Jackson's confirmation that he as an African-American was somehow soft on crime, extreme, radical, all these other contours. It didn't ratchet back up until Justice Bork, who was nominated by Ronald Reagan when eventually Justice Kennedy took that particular position. But Justice Bork, I mean, not Justice Bork, but Robert Bork was nominated for the Supreme Court. And that was a very contentious hearing. And that started the process. Things leveled down during future ones afterwards, but then it really ratcheted back up with the death of Justice Scalia, the holding of the seat by the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and then the Gorsuch hearing. McConnell's rule, if you will, that there wouldn't be a nomination that would be moved forward if the president of the opposing party was getting ready to leave office actually is something that didn't hold water because with Justice Kennedy, Justice Kennedy was confirmed in an election year with Ronald Reagan leaving and you had the Bush via the caucus election that was coming up that year, even though the opening started in 87. So it really didn't hold water, but that was the excuse at that time. So it's been since Gorsuch, but this is something that's popped up in previous hearings, like I mentioned, Marshall, then Gorsuch, I mean, Marshall, then Bork, and then Gorsuch, and now this is the norm. It really ratcheted up with Kennedy, I mean, not Kennedy, but with Kavanaugh and his process, and I think it's going to be the process that we have going forward. Unfortunately, the getting back to some sense of normalcy is over and the characterizations. It's kind of funny. Cory Booker said that Ted Cruz is a friend of his, but considering the way that Ted Cruz and others describe Democrats, it's kind of hard to see how they can be friends when the descriptions are so biased and negative, but that's where we are right now. That's where we are indeed. I'm going to bring you into this note, Ayanna. Um, Senator Joe Manson uh, kind of blasted the GOP's treatment of Katanji Brown-Jackson as disgraceful during the confirmation hearing. Can you give us uh, some kind of understanding what their line of attack was on Judge Brown-Jackson? Good afternoon. Yeah, so um, I think it has been discussed already, um, The the especially as sort of laid out by Eric, the introduction, um, that these hearings in general have become highly contentious. 
um, the background for the cr- the critique of how the GOP, the Republican side, has handled their line of questioning um, as Joe Manchin responded to and have many, many others um, has been along the lines of the tone, the subject matter for the line of questioning um, and and how that is indicative, not just of what has become egregious partisan politics, but also both race and gender based antagonism. Um, There's also um, a lot of thought being put to how sound bites are used um, in these hearings, not just confirmation hearings, but um, any other uh, substantive subject matter hearings that happen in the Senate um, and how those members leverage those opportunities in front of the mic to then have their staffers take clips um, and use them for advertisements. And so because it is highly suspected that several of the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee will in fact be throwing their hat in the ring to run for president, a lot of those uh, questions were in a tone to be chum to their base um, and to get them riled up and excited and also as a demonstrative of their position on certain issues that will not necessarily come before a Supreme Court judge. Um, They may have some uh, challenges at law, but by and large, uh, line of questioning, line of questioning, excuse me, that is out of the bounds of what a judge, especially a United States Supreme Court judge would hear. For example, school curriculum, um, which was one of the, the heavily badgered issues, I believe, by uh, Senator Cruz um, and, and many other questions, lines of attack um, that happened uh, from the bench. So I, I hope that helps answer the question. No, no, it absolutely does. And it perfectly cues up this uh, third and final clip. For Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, a marathon day in the Senate's hot seat. The 51-year-old federal judge, already an historic nominee, would become the first black woman on the Supreme Court if confirmed. I don't really have a justice that I've molded myself after or that I would. What I have is a record. Jackson preemptively addressing some Republican concerns that she was overly lenient in sentencing child pornography cases. As a mother and a judge who has had to deal with these cases, I was thinking that nothing could be further from the truth. Defending herself when pressed. But you had discretion, Judge. You admit that, right? I just want to be Senator, sentencing is a discretionary act of a judge, but it's not a numbers game. The judge also explaining her former role as a public defender. You are standing up for the constitutional value of representation. Judge Jackson sidestepping some of the committee's most political questions, like whether she'd support adding justices to the Supreme Court. In my view, judges should not be speaking in to political issues. And dismissing some questions entirely. Texas Senator Ted Cruz asking about anti-racist books taught at a private school where she serves on the board. They include a book called Anti-Racist Baby. Do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that, that babies are racist? Senator, I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist. 
while her nomination has been widely praised by Democrats, two South Carolina Republican senators, Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott, have criticised the president for choosing Miss Jackson over Michelle Childs, a judge from the home state. Uh, and and Judge Childs has uh, kind of navigated the conservative Republican uh, politics of South Carolina and seems to have done that with a aplomb. Uh, could she have been maybe a more acceptable choice for the Republicans in the Senate? Or is this just whoever you're going to put in front of us, if they're a Democrat, uh, we're actually going to vote against them. And we are just saying this uh, for, for the sake of optics. Anna Butler. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um, so I think I understand what you're asking, Royfield, and uh, as um, has been laid out, the numbers um, for the for this confirmation are there for her, as we now know as, as well with Susan Collins, uh, the senator for, from Maine, um, announcing that she will also support and vote for her confirmation uh, just earlier today. Um, but it, it really, because the, the filibuster has been removed from the situation, it really is just a 51 vote simple majority that is required. So she does have the numbers. And I believe it was Steve who outlined, or perhaps Otis, that it is clearly squarely within the Constitution for the president to nominate and the Senate to um, have their advice and consent and to, to vote for this. Right. So it is the president's choice who he chooses to nominate in this case, it's a male still, <laughs> uh, Joe Biden, to uh, to choose who he would like to nominate. He made his choice. I think um, that you are spot on, Royfeld, that it is politics, it is optics. It is a game um, to have something to say. Um, in this particular circumstance, we will probably never know um, the conversations that were had, as it is my understanding, as has been printed in the public domain, that the president did meet with both very qualified women, um, and he made his his choice of who he would like to nominate. Um, and so that process having been fulfilled per the Constitution, yes, Royfield, I, I would tend to agree that it is just 
talk and politics and optics. So I do agree as well that there would not have been any vote by Lindsey Graham or Tim Scott for Judge Childs. And Judge Childs was not treated uh, negatively by the media or by institutional groups that may have supported Judge Jackson over, I mean, supported Judge Jackson over Judge Childs. The good thing is, with Susan Collins, you have 50 for sure because you didn't know what Krista Sinema was going to do. And that's all you need. Worrying about anything else in this time that we're in is not helpful. Move forward with this qualified, extremely qualified, probably one of the most qualified that's ever been nominated and gotten through candidate and let her rulings and her opinions speak for themselves. Uh, I've mentioned it uh, a couple of times, but we haven't actually discussed it on the stage explicitly. How important is it that uh, the Supreme Court will have its first African-American woman to be one of its uh, justices, Otis? Well, I'll just give uh, two reasons I can think of. And Ayanna, you can you can you can chime in. I think one of the most important reasons that I think makes this a wonderful choice is what Katanji Brown Jackson actually stands for in totality. She represents a fine legal mind attached to someone with extensive experience uh, in a wide array of topics that court watchers believe uh, will be treated by the Supreme Court soon. We're talking about uh, the question whether qualified immunity is still a workable legal doctrine. That's important because questions about the uh, Fourth Amendment rights of private citizens continue to be discussed by the public. Uh, We're talking George Floyd, we're talking uh, Philando Castile, and so on. Um, Questions about the uh, continued use of race-based affirmative action in higher education admissions. That's something else that's sure to reach the court. Uh, Questions about the rights of criminal defendants. That's Those are the questions that continue to make their way to the Supreme Court. And we're talking about a woman here, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's worked as a uh, an appellate uh, litigator in the context of um, criminal, cr- um, criminal defense. Uh, we're talking about someone who's also um, very, quite familiar with sentencing uh, in, in, in criminal cases. We're talking about somebody who spent eight years as a federal trial judge uh, deciding cases that um, raise questions about uh, civil rights in the employment context, uh, civil rights in the criminal context, economic justice, uh, access to courts, and so on. So she has that experience. And if you look at her private life, and I'm not going to go into detail because Ayanna is waiting to speak, you will find uh, that she has demonstrated concern for 
the most marginalized groups in society. And so for someone like me, uh, who believes that um, a progressive view uh, of our constitutional protections is the right way to go, I think it's important for her to become uh, a voice on the Supreme Court, given the current um, composition of it. I think we have six uh, judges who are uh, conservative and three who are liberal. And as I said earlier, even if she uh, remains centrist uh, once she joins the Supreme Court, I, I think she's going to lean left. She's going to lean liberal. And, and, and that'll ensure that at least the liberal, the, the, the liberal uh, voting block of the Supreme Court will amount to something. It's not going to be everything I'd want it to be, but it's going to be something because three voices are definitely better than two. I'll stop there. Uh, thank you for that, Otis. Now, I'm going to throw this question, which has been uh, posed in the chat or a statement that's been put in the chat. But just before I do that, uh, for people who are listening at home, you're listening to uh, a recording of the podcast uh, Mid-Atlantic Horse. And the re- this recording has happened on the platform called Clubhouse. So if you are one of the 5,000 plus people who download the, the podcast every time we do one, why don't you go on to an app store of your choice, download the Clubhouse app, then become a member of the Mid-Atlantic Club, and then we'll be alerted when the shows go live. You can be in the audience and be one of the people who's there for the live recording of the show. You can raise your hand and you can participate in this podcast. For now, uh, Philip Denver has asked a question. I'll throw this at you, Ayana, and then we do have other people on stage who are going to widen out this conversation. Philip Denver says, what's interesting is about nominating a black judge for the fact of being black is that it actually hurts her credentials because one of the main factors she was chosen was because she was black and not based on qualifications that she holds. What a shame Biden tainted this. That is, Ayana, one of the charges put at Biden's choice, George Katanji Brown-Jackson. How do you respond? Uh, as a lawyer would. <laughs> so I would say that the due process clauses of the United States Constitution require judges to recuse themselves from cases in two situations. The first being where the judge has a financial interest in the case's outcome. And the second is where there is otherwise a strong possibility that the judge's decision would be biased. So I think on its face, it's pretty clear that the first one is out. And so I think what Philip is hinting at is that he assumes that just because she's black, that um, there is some sort of relationship between her race and her incentive towards bias in an affirmative action case. And I think that that is one based off of logic that the only reason why she attended Harvard University is because of affirmative action, which is a common misconception. Um, And then the second, I would say, is that by that same logic, uh, shouldn't all past white judges be recused from cases involving white issues, which some may say span the breadth of everything under the United States Constitution. Um, But perhaps in race cases as well, there is an incentive for a decision to go in another direction. So I think that there is grounds for recusal, um, but a serious conversation about race, race in America, and how bias happens. And I think most importantly, the perception that she only got to Harvard based off of affirmative action 
which is obviously not true, would have to be addressed. I, I appreciate everything Ayanna said about recusal, but your question didn't mention recusal. At least no, I didn't no, no. hear that. I thought your question no. was that it, somehow it, were nominated because of she was black as opposed to her qualifications. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's just false. I mean, that's just false. Okay. So she was, a, she was, yeah. I, she I was nominated. Something? She was nominated for both reasons. I, I'm not aware of anyone, including the president stating that he, he, his goal was to nominate someone who didn't have the qualifications and was a black woman. His goal was to nominate someone who did have the qualifications and was a black woman. And that's exactly what he did. I, the question just doesn't make any sense to me. If I can add to that point, too, let's talk intentionality for a moment. LBJ was intentional with the desire to nominate Justice Marshall. George H.W. Bush was intentional with the nomination of Clarence Thomas to replace Justice Marshall to continue an African-American voice on the court. And he was very clear with that. Ronald Reagan, as a candidate, was clear that he would vote, he would nominate a woman for the first opening, and he did with Sandra Day O'Connor. You've had the former person in the White House who was very clear that he wanted to nominate a woman to replace Judge RBG, and that he had a list of candidates from the Federalist Society. Here's the thing. When we've had, and we have extremely qualified people of color in America that are eligible and should be in these places of power, but have not been given that same intentional action of including them in the pool as white males. The Supreme Court has been roughly 97% white, 93% white male. So, and white men, adult white men, are only 28% of the population. That just predisposes that there are no or there's a lack of qualified candidates for these positions. And one last thing, too, point, is that traditionally, and especially with that last administration, there was an overwhelming reliance on finding and identifying white male candidates for every position uh, to a point of over 90% of the candidates for uh, ambassadorships, attorney general positions, appointee level positions, and the courts were white or white male. But you have these qualified individuals which are getting an opportunity now under the Biden administration. And there's the scream of it's not fair you're doing politics to appease a group versus the fact that there are a lot of qualified people that aren't white who have the background for these positions okay All right. um, th thank you for that i'm going to come now to you philip denver because you actually did ask uh, the original question and then i'm going to go to uh i'm going to go after that to oh he's gone I was going to say to, to my British friend who's been waiting patiently on stage. Then we're going to go to, to, to Kelly Saunders. So, uh, Philip Denver, you've had three robust uh, rebuttals uh, to your question. Uh, what do you say, sir? Yeah. So just to be clear, uh, KBJ is actually qualified in every way possible for the seat. I don't agree with her ideology, but to say she's not qualified, I don't agree with that at all. 
I think she's very much qualified. Uh, the point I'm making is that when you sit there and you say, I'm going to nominate somebody based on a immutable characteristic that they carry and so on and so forth, you actually hurt the case that they are qualified because you're saying that at the end of the day, the qualifying factor of why she was nominated happened to do with something she was had no control over. You know, she didn't have control that she was going to be born black. She didn't have control over that she was going to be born, be born a woman. So it's a little bit disingenuous to basically gaslight me like that. I, I think at the end of the day, when Biden comes out and says the number one thing that he wants to do is nominate a black woman, not off a idea of, I want to nominate somebody that I believe has the best merit for the job, who I have a philosophical agreement on, on how what a Supreme Court justice should do is just a little bit ingenuous. And the second point I'd make is that the actual point I'm talking about her recusal is that she sits on the actual Har- Harvard board of, uh, uh, what is it? She's the Harvard board. I don't want to say trustees, but, uh, and so she literally has front front space to know, understand how, what Harvard's legal policy is going to be moving forward in their affirmative action case, which within itself, any other judge that you place this into would be basically asked to recuse themselves. And you can simply look up Harvard and recusal and uh, K- KBJ, and you'll find multiple articles everywhere from the New York Times, Washington Post, and others asking the question if she's going to recuse herself from this case or not. So it goes to Otis's point that, yeah, you hope that she would have a voice in the court, but she may recuse herself, and she probably will if she holds with you know long tradition standings on these types of things. I'm sure Steve can talk a little bit about that because um, he'll understand, I guess, what t- what takes place when a recusal happens with a Supreme Court justice. Um, so all of that to be said, you know, this isn't a white or black issue in the sense of what I'm saying. I'm simply saying that Biden tarnished her nomination by his own words. Yeah, and I, and I just couldn't disagree more strongly. I think what you're saying simply makes no sense. You're putting words into the president's mouth and saying that because he said one of the essential qualifications for this particular nomination would be that the nominee be a black woman, that somehow he didn't think it was important that the person also be qualified. There's simply no basis for that. You're simply making that up. I think most people would take it as a given that the black woman he would select would be someone he believed was also highly qualified. Why would he do otherwise? It just So I think your question, frankly, is absurd. Well, maybe with it's regard, with regard to recusal, whether we think it's good or not, justices recuse themselves on their own initiative, unlike lower court judges in some states where there is a process for recusal and disqualification, two slightly different things, but both of them resulting in a judge stepping off a case. There is no process for that at the Supreme Court. Whether or not any justice would choose to recuse themselves in any particular case is up to them. There are certain guidelines and traditions that can be followed. But at the end of the day, I say this just informationally. I'm not making any argument, but just for all the listeners, each Supreme Court justice decides for themselves whether there is a conflict in a case or an appearance of a a conflict in a case that would make it appropriate for them to not uh, vote on the case. That's the actual process at the court. And I would like to add to that because I managed conflicts for a district court judge, a federal district court judge, and the same process applies throughout because this is a constitutional requirement. So any of the third branch Article three judges, so that's federal district, federal court of appeals and United States Supreme Court. That is absolutely the case. I do also want to add on the point of disinformation from Philip as well. 
that um, soon-to-be justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, was nominated to the Board of Overseers at Harvard University in 2016. This is a six-year term. So if the grounds for recusal stem from her role on this Board of Overseers as a six-year term, it ends likely either on the tail end or just before she would be confirmed to the bench um, when she would actually start hearing cases. So that overlap is specious at best. Kelly, we're going to have four women in the Supreme Court. Surely this is a cause for celebration. I mean, I think any time the diversity of the Supreme Court is expanded, there's a cause for celebration. I also do think that their political affiliation is, I think it's far more important where they, they lean on these things than it is necessarily their sex in this case. And, and I say that only in contrast to the fact that we have the first Black woman on the court. It, it is a case for celebration uh, in some ways, but far more, I think, because she's Black. And also, I think that, I do think Philip has a, has a, a point. I would say it a little differently, and maybe this goes to the point, the point of, of women having more of a voice. But I, I think that this goes to a, a point that something that's more racialized than that, which is that I, I think that Biden did tokenize her in a way and he did it for his own benefit. And I can't I can't like see this in any other way. But I can also absolutely think that she's qualified. It was very clear through the questioning that she is. I mean, it, it, there was in no way any sort of uh, thing that wasn't political that was thrown at her. She's got an extremely diverse background. She's got more trial experience than a few uh, nominees we've seen recently. You know, I, I think that at the end of the day, I hope what we see out of this is a woman and especially a black woman who is able to to hold up to the scrutiny that I do think that Biden unnecessarily basically facilitated for her. And I think she will. She seems very strong. I think that the fact that we now have a black woman who you just can't say that she's not qualified. I think it's amazing. And I think that's far more important than even adding another woman. Royfield, I'd like to comment on that very quickly. The history of how we got here cannot be ignored. I'm certain Joe Biden did not ignore it when Joe Biden, Joe Biden decided to announce that he was going to nominate a Supreme Court justice who is Black and female. He did that with the recognition that since the court's uh, creation in 1789, we've had 115 Supreme Court justices, all but seven of whom have been white men. We have had four white women justices on the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elena Kagan, and Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, we have had two Black men on the Supreme Court, Justices Thurgood Marshall and Clarence Thomas, and we have had one Latina woman, Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, for a very long time, the Supreme Court's bench was all white and all male. Those are two immutable uh, traits that ensured the court would look the way it did. Black people did not have a chance in hell of serving on the Supreme Court because of our country's history of de jure and de facto racial segregation. Women also were not allowed to participate fully in society. We all know that they received the right to vote only in the early 1900s. And so this idea um, that the race of a Supreme Court justice doesn't matter at all is preposterous. For a very long time, it did matter. You could serve only if you were white. Gender mattered as well. You could serve only if you were a female. Uh, in order to... I think you mean a male. 
I'm sorry, that's what I meant. I'm so sorry. Yes. In order to preserve the legitimacy of of our nation's highest court, I think that any president who has the opportunity to nominate someone needs to keep in mind that it's important to show to the entire country that the pathway to our nation's highest court is open to everyone. And you can't do that only by saying all people are created equal. You have to show that. And the way to show that is to make sure that the composition of the court reflects that. And the way to do that is to nominate someone like Katanji Brown Jackson, who is not only supremely qualified for the position, but also represents a, 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 a class of persons who for a very long time were systemically excluded from serving on the Supreme Court. Everything that you said is incredibly correct, Otis. Without a doubt. But here's me with my British hat on here. And also as host of the podcast, I'm I'm deliberately about to say something which um, could well set some people off. Biden, whilst he was running to become president, did say if he was elected, he would nominate an African-American woman. This was pure politics. And it was pure politics to the 93% of African-Americans who vote for the Democratic Party. He then came into power and uh, reaffirmed what he said whilst he was still a candidate. This is politics. Um, the symbolism is there, but it is it is party politics, isn't it? So isn't that one of the reasons why we can understand why some people will say you are putting uh, the politics before um, other considerations? Very obviously, this woman is extremely qualified to do the job but politics has been brought into it because it was a campaign pledge uh, and steve i i, Royfield, I just no, no, i can't steve, resist i'm sorry but no, no, but steve, when you say pure politics when you say pure politics steve 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 crone steve crone right bear in mind that you know i think you know where where actually where, where i sit with this but maybe the word poor pure i shouldn't have put in Right. But I'm just trying to understand the objections of the other side. And I'm trying to voice that. Steve. No, I respect that. But I think, look, if someone promises to provide clean water for the community as the campaign promise, and that's politically popular. Right. Okay. I mean, to me, to say that he made a promise that he thought would be to his political advantage is to say that presidents appoint Supreme Court nominees. I mean, what it's so it's so anodyne. I don't like I I mean, every president promises to appoint judges that, you know, for some reason, it's not simply, oh, one of my jobs is to appoint qualified judges. And there's no reason to talk about that as a presidential candidate. So I, I just don't understand how that cuts any ice at all. And I do think it's a slightly different argument than the one that was made. The one that I heard by two different people was that it tokenized the nominee. And this was stated by two people who said it's irrefutable that she's qualified. So I just don't, I, 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 again, I just don't even understand the thought. It's like, well, it's unfortunate that she's been tokenized we see that she's been tokenized, even though we've both come to the conclusion that she's irrefutably highly qualified. Well, then, h- what? How? Would, <laughs> I just don't understand. 
I don't understand why people would be against a nomination as well, but I'm just trying my best to articulate the other position. I don't need, I don't necessarily actually agree with it. I'm just trying to articulate it. And maybe I did a poor job trying to articulate a position, which I actually don't agree with anyway. Uh, but uh, the Duchess, you've been waiting. I think you're going to be uh, our last person on stage. Okay. Thank you so much um, for bringing me up. As a trial attorney, both in state and federal um, court, um, Justice Jackson is the type of judge you want to appear in front of. And then let me tell you why. Because she is not pro-prosecution. She's not a former prosecutor. You will find that a lot of state and federal judges are former prosecutors. Um, and when they're former prosecutors, they tend to be very intrusive. Um, but with her, you're going to get the, a fair trial. And she's going to look at all of the evidence or the lack of evidence. She's going to look at all the mitigating and aggravating factors. Um, and her exceptional knowledge is the type of judge that you want to appear in front of, especially for your, your client, because you are able to, you know, prepare better defense for your client because you know if there's conviction that she's going to look at everything from your client's previous, you know, convictions, um, everything, like I said before, from medicating to aggravating factors. And she's going to consider, you know, all of those things when it comes down to sentencing. And you can prepare your client, not because she is a Black woman, but because she is a fair judge and she's going to look at everything and she's going to look at the law. And if she has that discretion, she's going to, you know, exercise that discretion, but she's going to be fair. She's going to look at, you know, the people's position, the victim's position, your client's position and um, your client's background. So I just wanted to share that point of view as a trial attorney. Thanks. Uh, and, and thank you for that um, great couple of points that which you added, the, the Duchess. Uh, we are just about to wrap this up, but I, I just had a look at the back channel. I know there's a few people that want to say a few things, people who have been on the stage from the start. So now is the time. The only thing I'd say to you, uh, Iana, Otis, Eric, Steve, etc. if you do want to add something, just be brief uh, because it makes my editing job a darn sight easy if you are brief. So if you just want to have some kind of closing uh, comments or remarks, Iana Butler, over to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that this would be um, good for your audience to hear um, on the, the original question about the significance of um, soon to be Justice Katanji Brown Jackson and her confirmation. Um, so here in the United States, at least according to a 2019 American Bar Association report, 64% of lawyers are men, 36% are women. Um, around the 2010, 2011 uh, era, they had tracked about 4.7% of all lawyers being black, male and female. And I believe the number of black women is smaller than black men. So it has been touched on that um, the issue of role modeling. And what I can say and offer as my perspective as a former district court clerk is the observation that I had for from my judge, who is a black woman, the role modeling that such an appointment does for future generations in our profession, when there are so few of us already, 
the mark that it makes, the inspiration that it provides for us to show us that it is possible, that there is space that can be had in a profession that is so incredibly hierarchical in terms of pedigree, in terms of resume building and experience, and in terms of the significance of what is perhaps akin in other professions to something like a postdoc. Um, the fact that a black woman is in a position of authority, for example, over her clerks or his clerks, whoever that judge may be, when you have a black woman who is in that position of authority, it also shows non-black female uh, attorneys what it is to report to, that it is possible to report to somebody who doesn't look like you and that they are also due the same amount of respect. And I have personally observed attorneys both presenting evidence as trial attorneys in front of my judge, not so much clerks, but I have observed people in our profession struggling with the issue of, for the first time in their lives, being confronted with a black woman in power, a black woman in a position of authority. And I think that this is important and significant uh, when we're talking about meaningful diversity, not just diversity in pictures, but meaningful diversity and what it really means in this country to become more inclusive. So I think that there are the overt things. Yes, she's absolutely supremely qualified. But then there's also that injection of inspiration and role modeling. We heard that exchange, that very touching exchange that I will admit brought me to a couple of tears um, between her and Cory Booker. She very clearly knows who she is. She very clearly has expressed her appreciation for the significance of her nomination to this role. And I think for many lawyer generations to come, she will touch future clerks for whom a Supreme Court clerkship is, I think, and Steve may or may not agree, um, most highly prestigious thing that one can have on their resume as an attorney, as a new attorney freshly out of law school. And so the fact that she will be in a position to choose who works in her chambers says a lot about what she may do for grooming the future of the lawyers in our profession and the bar and diversity, meaningful diversity in the future. Uh, thank you, Ayanna. Um, I, I think that was such a wonderful end that I'm going to call rank and say that I'm going to actually wrap up the podcast now. I'm still going to leave uh, the room open for another half an hour or so. So if you're in the audience, you want to come up and have your say, um, feel free. But I think that was a really fitting end. Uh, thank you for for getting so far into the podcast that you're just about at the end. I think we've had a really kind of fascinating, stimulating de debate and discussion about Katanji Brown Jackson, because the first African American female justice uh, in the in the history of the American Republic, and it's something which I think we all should note and actually to celebrate. I know some people will say, "Well, it's just another justice, or it's just another woman." And uh, Mr. Denver, I, I think we can all appreciate, because Philip Denver said in the chat, uh, what a blessing 
to have them uh, kind of in, in the same court. But there's a lot of uh, people who would say that you can replace uh, KBJ with uh, Amy Coney Barrett and it would mean the same thing to a lot of women. But I think by, by that definition, by that uh, kind of standard also, Philip, you can also appreciate that to a lot of black women, to a lot of people of colour, um, seeing somebody um, in that role, one of the most powerful roles in the whole um, American society, that, that symbolism isn't just symbolism. It's, it's a powerful thing which reinforces the notion that anybody in America can attain whatever they want, where historically that has not actually been the case. This has been me, Royful Brown, uh, with um, some of my great friends on Clubhouse, Ayanna Butler, he's a good pal of mine, Eric Foster, Steve Crone, uh, Otis, new friend, and, and Kelly Saunders on stage. And I think um, one of the things which I, I, I utterly uh, love about doing Mid Atlantic is you can have really great informed uh, opinion and views uh, without it descending into rancor, which I believe is at the heart of all civil democracies that we should be able to meet in the commons the virtual commons the space where we recognize each other as citizens and that people have a legitimate uh, view and they can hold that strongly but dare i say we don't resort to fisticuffs uh, we can hear and we can debate and we can argue and we can even agree to differ uh, but um, it's the thing which actually binds our communities together mid-atlantic is proudly and avowedly a left of centre podcast, but we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We just try and win them over the strength of our argument. You can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com. Let me know if you think I'm doing terrible. Uh, let me know if you think uh, there's a topic we should be looking at when we do the compare and contrast between the US and the UK. We will be going back to do more stuff on uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, so beware of that. Uh, left of centre politics is right-thinking politics. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.